Hey everybody, welcome to the Good Line Podcast. I'm here with my friend. I know him. I love him. You might. It's Evan Wickham. How's it going, man? <laughs> hey, Aaron. So glad to be here. You're absolutely my friend. I love that. I'm glad you said that at the beginning because it's true. Ah, <laughs> oh, thanks, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, you know, we go way back. You know, you were my youth pastor. You introduced me to Pad Thai, mm-hmm. The Hobbit. I have your copy of The Hobbit that I think I stole from you. That's where I think it is. I, you, I, I think I borrowed it and never gave it back. I've been talking to my sons about The Missing Hobbit. Are you serious? Yeah, just recently. I'm like, I don't I'll, know where it went. I will, I'll mail it back to you. No. It's, you need to keep that. <laughs> now I can tell them a good story. <laughs> it's so good. But yeah, it's good to have you here, man. It's good to have you on the show. We've been wanting to have you on the show for a long time. Brian and I have quoted you several times on this show just because you're always dropping stuff that we appreciate. You're a fan favorite. So the topic we're going to talk about today, I think you will be able to speak into in ways that are pretty incredible. But to start out with, would you mind for anybody listening who doesn't know you just giving us kind of your background, your story, your family, how you ended up in ministry and what you and your family are doing right now? Yeah. Yeah. First, I mean, seriously, thanks, Aaron, for wanting to talk and, and having me on. It's a joy. I mean, like you, my wife, Sandy, and I grew up in Calvary parents that are Calvary pastors also like you. And yeah, just, I've never been more thankful now. I should say, let me say it again. I've never been more thankful in my life than I am mm-hmm. now for my Calvary roots. Just the, awesome. the emphasis on just, just Bible and prayer, read your Bible and pray. <laughs> you can't knock that. It'll never go away from me. And so, mm. yeah, my, my heritage gave that to me, you know, my Calvary roots. Mm. And yeah, we grew up there. And in our early 20s, we started doing a lot of music, a lot of worship in partnership with other denominations and other countries and got a, a deep love after tasting a little bit of how beautiful and diverse the body of Christ is. Just a deep love for her. Because, mm. you know, when you grow up in one space, you start to, you just don't, you just don't get you don't get a broad palette for all that God is doing all over the world. You need to, you need to travel and you need to develop relationships across, across the tracks, right. so to speak. And so we did that and we're like, man, I think we're supposed to start a church and I don't know what it's going to look like. And, you know, I don't want to give away too much of the point of this podcast, but there was, there were some things that were deconstructing in me at that time. There mm. were layers of questions that I didn't know how to ask or what spaces were the healthiest spaces to ask them. And, and I, I, but I knew that like a change of scenery was required. Otherwise, at that time, I would have planted a church out of arrogance and in reaction mm. to different experiences I've seen. And I remember sitting later mm. on mm. in seminary and there was a church planter speaking to us about the mission of God and the church. And he's like, hey, number one, don't of church planting do not plant a church because you're going to get it right where everybody else got it wrong. Number one, <laughs> do not like that's. And it just, when he said that, I just felt like a proverbial sword in my heart. Cause I knew mm, that mm. I knew that was my problem. Absolutely. Like I'm going to be the one who does it right. I'm going to figure it out. Yeah. I'm going to, yeah. And that's arrogance. And he said, number one, that's blasphemous to Jesus because it's basically telling Jesus he sucks at building his church. And and that mm, and you mm. can and, and number 2, you're going to create a reactionary culture that will ultimately turn its back on you. Mm. <laughs> if if you started out of a reaction. Mm. And that's just that's just mm. maturity 101. And so all that to say I now am 
more thankful <laughs> than ever before in my life for all of the years of planting and watering that countless mm, mm. teachers, pastors, apostles, prophets, evangelists poured into my life. And Sandy, my wife, says the same, like, oh, my gosh. And just to come full circle last week, I was with your parents at Calvary Vista and, and just to <laughs> Sandy and I to stand to sit on the stage together and just share from our marriage journey with a bunch of couples at, mm, yeah. at the church that gave us the first opportunity to serve 20 plus years ago. It was so beautiful. So grateful. So yeah, my wow. brother, you know, Phil Wickham, famous worship guy, my parents gave us the gift of music by creating an atmosphere mm. for us to be nurtured musically. My sister is amazing. Also <laughs> serving God in her spheres. And yeah, we have five kids. Sandy and I have a 19 and a half year old Gavin all the way down to six year old River. Four boys oh, and a girl. Wow. Our girl's eight. But yeah, sorry, yeah, that's the story. You can, I'll, I'll, I'll hand the mic back to you. <laughs> there, there you go. Awesome, man. Great story. Yeah. You know, I, I love what you said there and I feel like it'll play into our conversation because, you know, the whole thing about feeling frustrated with certain aspects of the church, wanting to start a church out of those frustrations and then like actually listening to, to wise counsel that's like, mm -hmm. hey, that's not, the right, that's, that's not the right way to do it. That's what I've always appreciated about you, man, because you're, you're somebody who you, you, you're passionate about things and you get fired up about things. And when you learn things, it actually changes you. And it causes you to not just go, okay, I'm going to file that away in my head, but you go, I'm going to actually, this is going to make an impact on my life. Like mm. my trajectory is going to change. But then there's been this deep respect for the people that have come before you, the people that you think are wiser than you. Like I've, I've seen that and it's been something that I've been like, I want to adopt that in my own life, mm. you know? So I, I appreciate you mm. and, and that spirit that you have. In today's episode, what we really want to talk about is people leaving the church yep. and, and specifically millennials leaving the church. And I know it's not just millennials. We've got, you know, Gen Z and even other people, but, but millennials are the ones that everyone likes to talk about. The statistic that I've seen thrown around has been like 59% of millennials who were raised in the church have stopped attending. And actually 35% of them now believe that church does more harm than good. So... Just to start out, I mean, is that something that's been on your radar, that problem, that issue? And what are your, what are your feelings about it? Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely something I think about a lot. Like we were talking about at the beginning, I don't know if I'm a millennial or, or a really, really young Gen Z. I mean, Gen X. But, but what, <laughs> Definitely not that. No, yeah, I have, I have Gen Z. I have really young <laughs> Gen Z kids. And when I think about them, I'm... <laughs> Very encouraged. You know, mm. my, my oldest son, Gavin, he's he's at YWAM right now, and they've asked him to come back as staff. YWAM is Youth with a Mission. Wow. They raise up people, young people mostly, to to be, you know, firebrands in the hand of God, to be missionaries <laughs> in their in their space or abroad. And Gavin mm. decided to take six months to dig into community in really a monastic sense. It's kind of like a monastery. You mm. go away, you spend mm. six months with a commune and, <laughs> and you learn, you learn a deeper experience and expression of the gifts of the spirit. You learn more about prophecy. You learn the scriptures, mm. you get a heart for mission and for their mission phase, 
their their home base in Norway is sending them all up the coast in a in a in a ship, a YWAM ship, where they're hmm. they're sailing the thirteen thousand mile coast of Norway, stopping at churches and other YWAM bases just to bring encouragement and to enrich hmm. their kingdom, uh, the the their kingdom experience in their place. And and they put Gavin in charge of prayer on the boat. I'm cool. just like wow, you know, I'm 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 thrilled at what is going on in his heart. And then my 16 year old, same thing. Uh, and my 13 year old, same thing. And so, hmm. yeah, the stats can be overwhelming. I know, it, I know it's even worse in England, in the UK, they say 50% yeah. of churches have less than five, 18 and unders at their churches. Wow. Yeah. So, so I mean, that, that's, that's pretty intense <laughs> when you, yep. whoa, half of the churches in England have almost zero minors in them. Yeah. We, we saw that when my wife and I were in Ireland, we lived there for about uh, three months. We were praying about moving there as missionaries. And yeah, the, the churches definitely did not have very many young people. And the mentality was like, if there were young people, it was, this isn't real to me. I'm just going to make grandma happy, basically. Yeah. And I get that. I just had someone ask me on, I think, Twitter today. They heard a recent sermon I gave on praying through doubt and deconstruction. And they're like, yeah, I heard mm-hmm. it. But like, what do you think about what if the church, what if, do you, do you think you can grow past the church? Mm. Or, and then he asked, do you think it's possible to grow beyond the systems and institutions that we've received? Mm. And I see those as two different things. Are you saying grow past the church, like the expression mm. of Jesus in the world, the organic bride of Christ, the temple of God in every nation, tribe and tongue, the church or mm. systems and institutions? You, we should see those things as different. It's what yeah. it's is it the wine or the wineskin? Jesus used that metaphor beautifully. Every yeah. every wineskin will ultimately burst in order to receive the new vintage. And the new vintage is the old expression of the spirit. It's the Holy Spirit through a people admitting their need for Jesus and their need for forgiveness in submission to the Father. That is the church. And they do it as a community. Mm. Systems will change. And I think to answer your question, millennials are in this beautiful middle place where the internet has completely changed. They're the generation. I am, Mm. if I'm in that generation, I am the generation that that gets to pivot socially from mm. from snail mail and TV to <laughs> globalized consciousness. Yeah. Um, what does that look yes. like? Yes, yes. We see more injustice. And so we react. And so we're like, how could yeah. the church do this? Because you can find out <laughs> any bad thing yeah. you want to find out and react to it. Yeah, we know so much more now. It's almost like it's that idea of like the knowledge of good and evil. Like we have so much more knowledge of both the good and the evil in society. And that can be really overwhelming. Like I know that's something that for many people in my generation, we open up not the newspaper, but our phones. And it's just like bombardment with every horrible thing that's going on in the world and everybody's opinion about it all the time. So that that can be hard. That can be a struggle. What, what I'd want to ask you is, are you experiencing kind of what, what I am? You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like a middle millennial. And what, what I've seen is I went to a private Christian school, the same one that you went to for a while, right? Mm-hmm. You, did you go to CCS? Mm-hmm. Calvary Christian graduated, School Vista? Graduated from there. You started at Costa Mesa and then you, you went over to Vista, right? I did. Yeah. And so like I was in a small class, a class of 30. And my perception of almost everybody at the time growing up was that everybody was a Christian. Everybody was a Christ follower. And then 
now what I'm seeing is many of my friends have either drifted out of that into kind of like a weird nebulous, like, I don't really know if I fully believe anymore. I don't know if uh, church is for me. Like I kind of still believe, or they've just like, they're just straight up atheists now. And they'll tell me that they're like, yeah, Aaron, that's cool that you believe that. But like, that's a fairy tale, man. Like I, I don't, I don't, I don't do that anymore. And have, have you experienced that? Like people that you knew and grew up with and like sat in youth group with and sat in Bible class with walking away. Hmm. That's a interesting question. Cause I, I can't say I've spoken much with the folks I've graduated with recently, but I definitely talk now with plenty hmm. of people my age and younger who are wrestling with genuine doubt. And I, yeah. and I find yeah. so much, so much fruit and traction when doubt is given an appropriate space in the spiritual life. Mm, mm. Doubt doubt is to truth as hunger is to food. And <laughs> and these hunger pains mean I'm empty. I need mm. I need to sink my teeth into something real. And that's healthy. And doubt mm. in that sense is healthy. I love what my friend Dominic Doan says in his book Finding God in the Shadows, I think, or When Faith Fails. Mm. That's his book. When, when, faith, when fails, faith Fails. Yeah. And and he just says like doubt was part of creation. How else would Adam and Eve have the wherewithal to look to the stars and wonder? Doubt is just part mm, of wonder. Mm. And it just means I'm hungry for, I'm hungry for, for, for the answer or for the solution to this open-ended problem. I'm The problem right now is I'm here and the stars are up there. Yeah. How much distance? Yeah. <laughs> how much heat? How much light? What is this place? Yeah. And, and I, I, I want to, I will say this. We grew up in more conservative Christian circles, I think. And in yep. those spaces, there's often kind of a, I'll just speak bluntly, like a, a demonization yep. of doubt, where mm. where doubt is, is less inclined to be given a lot of airtime. And, mm. and, I, and I think the result of that, when someone's genuinely doubting, the result can be that they feel like their doubts are unsafe. They can feel like they're being mm. treated like, hey, m- my doubts aren't really being heard. I'm, gi- I'm being given short, trite answers. When my, yep. my biology professor at UCSD showed me, he showed me <laughs> the hard evidence across the global community of scientists for, right. for a view right. that is unlike the one I was handed in my conservative mm. Christian church. What do you yep. make of that, Pastor? Yeah. And then and and actually wrestling through that, often one can be made to feel like they are the problem by even raising the question. And so the result is, man, I I guess I can't be in the church because I'm a dangerous yeah. person. Now the other yeah. side, yeah, yeah. the other side, I think in the progressive circles today, you talk about friends that just deconstruct. I'm just an atheist. I don't and I think doubt can be almost valorized. Like, mm. like doubt is seen as a virtue and you have to doubt in order to be a good person and, yeah. and deconstruct. It's not about the, it's not about the testimony anymore. It's about the anti-testimony. Exactly. Like you're, you're coming out of Christianity story of here's how I became enlightened that what I grew up with wasn't actually true. Yeah. And you, you're then driven by doubt and doubt is now shaping your whole spiritual life. And that is equally mm. dangerous. And, and yeah. so the Psalms, which is why I love that our church is in the Psalms right now, it shows us a third way where doubt is actually mm. an environment for legitimate growth and encountering God afresh. Mm. That's really good. Yeah. And what you're talking about, I've seen it. Like as a youth pastor, I was, I was at Calvary Vista doing youth ministry for 
like 12 years, some as a volunteer and some as a pastor, loved it. And I saw that trajectory some kids got on where it was like, like I literally had a girl sit me down after a sermon and what I was preaching about wasn't even about what she was talking about. She was just like, Hey pastor, can we talk? She was like, Aaron, I think I believe in evolution now. And that's what I'm learning in school. I've been researching it. It makes a lot of sense. My parents are telling me I can't be a Christian. Like, and she was just like heartbroken because she was like, I think I can, you know, reconcile these two things together. But according to my parents, like I'm out of the Christian community now. And yeah, that's always been the, like such a struggle for me watching kids go through that because hmm. I think we can tend to major on the minors at times where we draw these lines in the sand. And it's like, unless you're, you know, a young earth creationist, unless you're a dispensationalist, unless you're a Calvinist, unless you're like, whatever, draw these lines. And it's like, if you're not that, then you're not actually a part of the family of God when that's not at all the burden that Jesus put on us. Yeah. Like, I agree. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah, there's that reaction. And I would say there's not just intellectual, like science and faith, but there's like very practical mm-hmm. justice issues that are problematic yeah. for millennials and even Gen Z. Like mm. the data, the data is coming in on Gen Z and they want to see receipts. They want to see that the church mm. is good for the world before they buy into it. Mm. Mm. Is the church really going to be good for the world? You say that Jesus is the reason for hospitals and welfare and democracy and all of the social benefits we enjoy. Well, where is that social benefit now for the church? Mm. Right now, all I see is a certain form of republicanism mixed with church when I turn on my news Mm -hmm. or I see, you know, church versus Black Lives Matter or whatever. And, And so the Gen Z wants to see how is the church doing justice? How is the church good for the world? And so I think that's where we can recover Jesus' original message and show the beauty of his justice-seeking spirit. And that's what the gospel does. And so Gen Z is looking for it. And millennials and Gen Z are leaving spaces where they don't see that the church is good. Right. Spaces where they see the church defining itself as what it's against, as opposed to like what it's for. Yeah. And that can be... I, I see that. Like I, I'm somebody who I, I try, I, I'm not one to jump on an, one side or the other and say, this is my side and that's my side. And these guys are right. And these guys are wrong. I do believe that there is like objective truth. Absolutely. So I'm always making my own truth assessments of what's going on. But what I think what I'm trying to say is where maybe I was raised in an environment that caused me to look at anybody outside the tribe and say, Oh, they're, they're the bad ones and we're the good ones. We're the righteous. They're the unrighteous. I've been trying over the years to learn how to look more compassionately and see there's a, there's just a broken world full of people that believe a lot of different things, but they need Jesus, Mm. you know? And so, yeah, the struggle I can see, I see exactly what you're saying. Gen Z, especially with social media and social media activism right now, they want to see, Christians caring about what is going on in the world and coming at it from a way that is, is loving. And for us, the, the hard thing is always like, how do we balance that truth and love? But sometimes I think we miss the mark. Like mm-hmm. if I'm just honest with all the racism stuff that's been going on, or, or at least not going on, but the stuff that's been in the, in the spotlight over the past couple of years, the, the way I see it is the world is looking at the problem and it looks like this dumpster fire. And it's like, church, what are you going to do about this? And then they look at the church and the church is just like, yeah, I, I, I don't really care about that fire, but I know I don't like CRT. 
You know, <laughs> I know I don't <laughs> like, uh, you know, I don't like <laughs> how <laughs> you're handling the problem, but are you going to help us fix the problem? I just want to criticize the way that you're handling the problem. And I think that to me is one of the biggest struggle where then the, the young people just look at the church and they're like, well, if you're not going to do anything about the problems of the world, then why should I even care about what you have to say? Yeah. You know, so that can be the struggle for us because <laughs> for us, it's like ultimately like what we're after is we want people to know Jesus. But sometimes we can be so heavenly minded that then we're not any earthly good, I think. Yeah. Even what you said about two minutes ago, when you're like, I just think the world is broken and everybody needs Jesus. You said everybody Mm. needs Jesus. And, you know, if I could put on my Gen Z hat for a second, I'd be like, Mm -hmm. but what does it mean? What does that mean? (laughs) Right. What does it mean to need Jesus? Is, is it Mm. like, I need, I need to sit in a sermon and hear a gospel sermon? Cause that's good. I could see how that could lead to good in the world. Does it mean I need to admit that I'm a sinner? And that I need forgiveness from a savior. Okay, that's great. So when does that lead to good in the world? Or does need Jesus mean the world needs communities that are that are confessing sin and receiving forgiveness, going into the world as the hands and feet of Jesus in the places of greatest pain, sexism, mm. racism, hatred, mm-hmm. and oppression are being relieved in Jesus' name. If that's mm. what you mean by needs Jesus, that makes sense to Gen Z. Mm-hmm. That makes sense to millennials. And I think that that disconnect where there's a gospel message, people just need Jesus and they need to come to Jesus and they need to say sorry for their sins. And they need to receive forgiveness and respond to the gospel. It's like, okay, I, I've seen a generation do that. And it, it's given us this political weirdness that I see on TV where yes. there's, there's this evangelical tribe that is confessed Jesus that seems to be all about these other things. Mm. So, so how, how do we connect from the gospel confession to the gospel mission of Jesus's justice in the world? And I'm, I'm careful at our church not to say social justice because mm. that's connected to a lot of things for a lot of people. I'd rather talk about just justice like Jesus does. Mm. <laughs> There's plenty of versions of social justice that are unbiblical, but biblical right. justice is always social and it flows out of Jesus's gospel. So that's, that's, that's super interesting because next week, uh, a week from today, I'm actually going to be interviewing Dave Lummis about that, that very same subject of social justice in the church. What does that look like? Should we use the term? Should we not? That sort of thing. But he's great on that. Yeah. Everything that you're saying, I think is resonating. It's resonating with me. It's resonating with a lot of people. I think let's back up a little bit. And let's examine that problem of millennials and Gen Z, people who grew up in the church, Christian parents, they're leaving. What are some of, if we could just like, in your mind, rapid fire, what would you say from your observation, what are the main reasons that people are leaving? And I feel like you were somebody who pastored in Portland. That's a, that's, there was probably a lot of that going on. People who grew up in Christian homes and then getting out, you know, what, what, what were the reasons that you saw Mm -hmm. people got out? I mean, there's a lot of reasons. It's there's many reasons as there are people. People are mm. so people. People are so complex. And in Portland, mm. you saw this every day. It's funny. My friend AJ, who was a pastor in Portland for a long time, he he calls it the new Oregon Trail. Where if you ever played that video game Oregon Trail, <laughs> loved it, dude. You go get some dysentery. Yeah, you die of dysentery <laughs> if you don't, you know, stay clean and eat the right food or whatever. And the new Oregon Trail is a bunch of kids. They pack up and go 
to Portland to go to school or just to experience a different kind of life. And they don't die right. of dysentery. They start dying of deconstruction. And there's just something in the air there. And it's in the post-Christian West. And, and it's it's secularism sinking its teeth into the church. Mm. And and the reasons that, that flows out is all, all kinds of reasons. I think it, it often boils down to sexuality. Like, wh- why mm. does a book compiled thousands of years ago have any authority over yeah. what I do with my body? Like, doesn't right. God care right. more about what I do with the poor than what I do with my private time? Like, <laughs> like, doesn't God want me to go do justice and not necessarily have an oppressive sex life? That's, that's very near to the heart of the de- the mm. movement that is deconstruction that is causing people to ask questions. And I, and I make a distinction at our, at our church. There's, there's, clean doubt and dirty doubt. And I think both reasons are good reasons to step back and go, why am I in the church? Hmm. But more often than not, it's dirty doubt that leads people away from the church. And when I, and I don't mean to discount anyone's genuine experiences of being abused in the church, but dirty Mm, doubt, dirty doubt is when we don't, we're, we're not really willing, or we don't really get the tools to deconstruct our own doubts first. Like, why am I really skeptical? Why am I, yeah. why am I critical? Can I be critical of my own criticism right now mm. and just do what Psalm 73 does when he says, I was, I almost slipped. I was, I was losing, I was losing my grip on faith because I was envious of the wicked. Mm. Mm. Not because I heard some great argument for evolution. Mm. I was, I, I slipped from the faith. I doubted God's goodness because honestly, this isn't everybody, but this was the psalmist. This was me. This was me in my 20s. I was doubting Mm. the faith Mm. because I was jealous of people I disagreed with gaining more influence than me. Oh, wow. Hmm. Yeah. And and maybe that plays a part of it with a lot of people where you're looking at the culture and the culture seems like they have stuff figured out. Like Mm -hmm. when you scroll through Instagram activism and they post those little memes with the, uh, that aesthetic, you know, that, that millennial pink is what they call Mm -hmm. it. And it's got the text all neatly laid out. It's, it, it often, at least from my perception, it's this very, this very almost sassy attitude of like, this is how the world works. And if you don't have this figured out, then you're an idiot and you need to get on board with everybody else. And I mean, I experienced some of that, you know, I mean, I, when I realized that evolution was what everybody believes in, in modern society. And for me as a young Christian growing up holding this minority position, I was like, Oh my gosh, my, my non-Christian friends probably think I'm an idiot, Mm -hmm. you know? So there's insecurity that comes there. I I think another thing that I've seen is, or the thing I've struggled with, I guess I would say is as a youth pastor, I would have kids who I, I watched them grow up. I watched them go up and, you know, say the prayer at camp and dedicate their life to the Lord. I baptized them. Like I saw them serving. And not only that, I saw them go through things where it was obvious that the Holy Spirit was working in them. It was obvious that God was doing something. And, and, you know, remembering times where they were younger and more sensitive and the tears would come because of that sensitivity to the spirit. And then I, I've literally had those same people sit in my living room and say to me and my wife, we don't believe this anymore. Like we're done. And we don't think we ever believed it. And all that Holy Spirit stuff was just emotional manipulation. And that's heartbreaking. And that's so hard. And, yeah. and the, the, the illustration that I've used with it is, I don't think deconstruction in itself is a bad thing. 
if you grew up in a church, and I've said this before in other episodes, but if you grew up in a church and there was things that were not the Bible, but just your pastor's opinion, you know, your pastor's bent, his own pet theology that he sold to you as like, this is the only way to think about it when really there's like 14 different scholarly perspectives you can, you know, you can go to. If you are looking at that stuff and saying, I'm going to get destroy my entire faith because some of that stuff was there. It's like having a great house and you find termites in the house. And instead of saying, oh, I need to hire an exterminator to get rid of these termites, you burn your house down and move somewhere else. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of people are doing. And, but I get it. Like I have so much sympathy and compassion 100%. for people because it's like, if uh, this, is, this is where I go to in my brain. If I grew up and people told me that unicorns made the universe and one day we will travel to a land of rainbows and unicorns, I would believe that for a very long time until I got exposed to other ideas. Yeah. And so, yeah, I have that sympathy for people where it's like, I believe this with all my heart. I believe it's true, but I understand why you don't right now. Yeah. And I'm, I'm entrusting you to, to the Lord. Yeah. And I, if I believe that if he's real, he can win you back. And, and that's, that's important, Aaron. Uh, I love that. And I want to, I want to say something that I think, is probably the most important thing I could say in this conversation. And as a pastor dealing with people regularly deconstructing in San Diego, we have a liberal Christian college nearby. We have liberal secular mm. colleges nearby, and we have a lot mm. of people from both asking great questions in our church community. And the thing I would say, if there's any pastors listening, or if you're someone wrestling with doubt, that's awesome. That's actually healthy <laughs> to, to, le to wrestle with doubt in a clean way is, is healthy. Yeah. And I would say this. Yeah. I would say, pastors, goodness, give space for spiritual consent. Mm. Like if someone comes to you and they're asking a question and they seem like they're doubting and deconstructing and, and there's an angst there, just say, hey, I hear you. Like, I'm, I'm not going to give you answers. I'm not going to just give you information right now in hope that I'll help you. Like, I want you to know that I'm here. And whenever you're, whenever you're ready, give me consent. I will not speak into your doubts until you give me consent. Hmm. Relational, spiritual consent. Because I think when we rush in and go, oh, that's easy. Like what you just described, unicorns don't run the world. I can prove to you how much more acceptable and reasonable it is to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead than a unicorn. Here's the answer. Here's the eyewitness account. <laughs> right. Right. But there's a state of right. heart where I'm just not, I'm just not actually asking for information. I'm letting you know that I have problems. I've, I've gone through a situation or I've seen abuse or I've been abused and I've been mm. wounded and it messed me up. Mm. Mm. How are you going to atone for that pastor? Yeah. And as a pastor, I literally have to say, oh my gosh, I could never atone for it. I, I believe Jesus did. But, uh, yes. but, until, yes. but until, you're, until you trust me and you know that you're known and you can know me, I, I will wait until you give me spiritual consent so we can journey down this deconstruction path yep. together towards healing. Because sometimes people yeah. look for answers, but what, what we really need is healing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, that was something that I really feel like the Lord impressed on my heart towards the end of my time in youth ministry. I was, I was doing this thing that I probably wouldn't do now that I'm like in my thirties, but in my mid twenties, like it, it worked 
better, but just walking up to random groups of teenagers, it, it works when you work at a church and you have like a job that is that when you're not working at a church, and you're not affiliating with anybody. It, it, it is weird to just walk up to a random group of teens at the mall. But yeah. I used to do that and I would start talking to them and like nine times out of 10, those conversations would have some sort of thing like, oh, I could never go back to church because this is what I experienced there. And this is the legalism I experienced. And this is the, the hurt that they made me feel. And this is how they treated me when they found out about my sin. And I just had to mentally prepare myself every time going to those conversations. I'm not going to defend their church. I'm not going to be an apologist for their church. I'm going to say, I am so, so sorry that happened to you. Let me tell you about Jesus because the way that they treated you, that was never how it was supposed to be. Let me tell you about Jesus and the way that he treats people and the way that he loves sinners. And yes, when I say that, yeah, I think you're a sinner, but I am too. And let me tell you about my sin and the way that Jesus rescued me from that. And I found that that kind of posture, instead of the constantly trying to defend criticisms of the church, you know, because I see a lot of people do that where the posture is just this constant defensiveness. And if you try to point out, even as an insider, any flaws within the system or any ways that we're not reaching the lost people. Some people have this natural proclivity to just go into defense mode and just say, how dare you criticize the church? But in my mind, it's like, if we're not policing ourselves, if we're not criticizing ourselves, how are we going to keep up with the world and not adapt to their idea of truth? We have our truth. Our truth doesn't change, but we, the ways that we love them probably need to change. And because if we're not, if we're not adapting, then we're going to be treating them in our mind the way that we think that we should, but it's not going to be the right way. I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense, but I feel like a lot of, I've seen a lot of kids slip through the cracks because their, their, their spiritual community did not know how to deal with them. I remember friends of mine where when it came out that they were gay, they basically just disappeared from our community. Yeah. And even like looking back, I didn't reach out to them like as a teenager. Yeah. Cause in my mind I was like, Oh, they've done the worst thing. So now like, yeah. I don't know. I, I can't like they're, they're too far gone when what I should have been doing was reaching out to them and loving them and calling them back and, and just being like planting that seed of like, I know you're not ready to hear the truth now, but I want you to know I'm here for you when, whenever you are, yeah. you know? And yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. So yeah, on that thing you're talking about with consent and just being there for people on their terms, I found that to be a really good way to do it. There, there's a girl I'm thinking of specifically who is at the point where, you know, grew up in a Christian home, grew up in the youth group, is just completely out of it at this point, like just doesn't want anything to do with it. And she'll post things on social media all the time that are very, you know, just very left wing, very like in the secular sense, like just very antagonistic towards Christianity calling out flaws in Christianity and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and very often she'll have people from her former life yeah. respond and just be like, what are you doing? Like, this is, this is so stupid. This is sinful. You need to repent. And that just seems to push her away further and further. What my wife and I have done is we just message her from time to time and just say, Hey, we love you. And if you ever need to talk, we're here. And from time to time, she'll reach out and she'll be like, Hey, I don't agree at all, but can you explain why Christians think this way about sexuality? And then she's willing to listen to what I have to say because I've made myself sort of this non-offensive 
presence where she knows I, we disagree on a lot, but I've, I've continued to remind her that we love her. Yeah. You know, that's beautiful, I, man. I think, th- I think that makes a difference. Yeah. That's beautiful. That is, that is that idea of, Hey, we want to be safe and real. And, and, and by safe, we mean vulnerable about our own shortcomings mm. and interested in you as a human being, not as a mm. quota to fill, not as a notch on our evangelical belt to preach at, but we're interested in how you're processing because you used, you used to think one way and you think another and we're interested. Right. That, that's, yeah, it's God. Yeah. That's creating a sense. Like we are say you can give us spiritual consent. If you, if you're willing to really process, we're here. If you're willing to doubt clean with us, we're here for you. Yeah. It's God's kindness that leads to repentance. And that's the posture. I think we see the father in the prodigal son story. Like he's very, willing to put up with the son's prodigalness, but also very much right there at the door mm-hmm. for when they're coming home, mm-hmm. you know, sit, sitting with the porch light on. So if I can shift gears, I, I think what I'd want to ask you is, you know, with this whole thing we've been talking about with people leaving the church and now also this term of ex-evangelical, you've heard that before, right? Mm-hmm. That's like, I was an evangelical Christian. Now I'm, you know, no longer. A lot of times it has to do with trauma. It's sort of this new hashtag, mm-hmm. like sort of like the Me Too movement. It's this social media movement of people who were like, we were raised in the church, but we, we dealt with abuse. We dealt with trauma. And so now we're out and we're not just out, but we're fervently against it. I think what I'd want to ask you, man, is with so many people leaving the church, why have you stayed? That's what I always like to ask people because we've got these anti-testimonies, you know, where it's like, here's why I left. I want to know. For people who grew up in the church, they saw the good, they saw the bad. You're a pastor's kid like me, so you, you've seen how the sausage is made. You've seen good in church, you've seen bad. Why have you stayed? What's been your main motivations? And, and, and why do you continue to follow the way of Jesus and preach and teach the way of Jesus? Yeah, good question. I think that's an important question to respond to for anyone, especially when they're paid by a church. <laughs> Honestly, like I think that's a real, we have to really answer that, not fake answer. And my, mm-hmm. my real answer is I had an opportunity to kind of stay out of pastoral ministry per se and just kind of do the Christian music thing for seven years. Mm. My wife and I, you know, we'd write songs and travel and had a mm. publishing mm. deal in Nashville. And it was on the table kind of playing around with moving to Nashville and kind of just being not, not part of a church, not necessarily even paid by a church, but what would it look mm. like to do the music thing? And we, we, in that time chose to pursue church planting. And again, it wasn't pure. It wasn't pure motives. <laughs> part of it in me, <laughs> part of it was, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it different. I'm going to do it right where I've seen it wrong. And, mm-hmm. and, and God used that. Like God used, he repurposed that. Mm-hmm. And, and he get, I, I believe God is gracious and, and he, he intervenes and he reached in and he said, I can use that angst and redirect it to Portland where you're going to submit mm. to elders who you trust mm. and you're going to let mentors speak directly into your life and let mm. you know where your daddy issues are, honestly. <laughs> like, mm. wow. and, and I knew that the, the only way to be honest, again, this is a difference between clean doubt and dirty doubt. The only way to mm. do doubt clean was to let older, wiser people, people tell me the truth about what they see. Like, what do you see in me? And often, even in front of other students, (laughs) my mentors would be like, hey, I see that you're playing around in a progressive sandbox. When are you going to be done? 
<laughs> when are mm. you going to be ready to move forward with the church instead of dismantle your past in the church? That was for me. And I don't want to just speak glibly about everybody's journey that's full of unique pain. But, but for me, I, I, I joined the church in Portland and went to seminary. It was mixed. The, the bad part was I wanted to pick apart my past. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and God used that. I hmm. I have a I have a richer, fuller view of God. I, I believe I read the scriptures more responsibly than I used to. And hmm. and I just think, gosh, in when you're in that phase, when you're in that moment that you're talking about, where it's like, I don't know if reading the Bible works for me for me anymore. My parents, my church gave me a way of reading the Bible that just doesn't fit. That's beautiful. <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. I think that's not you, you, that's not you losing your faith. That's you growing. You just need to realize as a human, you're growing. Now your spiritual practices need to catch up. Yeah. Yeah. Like you need to learn to read the Bible responsibly now. You're not a six year old in the right. faith. You're now you're 16. And, and, and so, so you can't, you can't just, you can't just surface read Genesis mm. or Revelation. And remember back to whatever it is that you're triggered by. You have to actually, if you want, if you want yeah. to wrestle clean with God and with his church, there's plenty of space in the church to do that. The problem comes, I think, when, you know, you know, the ex-evangelical thing's interesting. The, the problem comes when someone's like, hey, you have doubts. That's, in, that's awesome. That's interesting. Not, not glibly, not, not, not glibly. Like that, that is very, very precious to be in that space. What do yeah. you, and the question, what are you doing? What are you doing with your doubt? What like, do you do with your doubt? What are you doing? Yeah. Like there's so much to be done. Are you, are you reading books that have wrestled with those questions thousands of years ago? Are you taking right. an online class? Are you running it by any scientists or theologians? Yeah. And if the answer yeah. is like, no, nah, you know, I just kind of listen to deconstruction, liturgist podcasts that kind of resonate with like where I'm at. Well, then I just want to say like, yeah, duh. <laughs> I just want to say, right. like, with all love and due respect, no duh. Like, no wonder yeah, you're spiraling. Old, it's the old adage, you are what you eat, literally. Like, you will become what you are putting in. And and so it's like, it can be on both sides are bad. If you have doubts and all you do is just stuff the doubts down and you never engage with them, you're like, well... Uh, my senior pastor at my local church is he has to be right about everything. He has to, if he's wrong, then the whole house of cards completely falls down. If you do that and you just try to have this blind faith, eventually that doubt, just from my experience, what I've seen, and even in my own life, it'll build and build and build until it reaches that crescendo. If then you, on the other side, you completely just dive into doubt and you're just like, my whole thing's doubting now. Like I just, I've literally seen this with several friends of mine where I watched the trajectory. We, I've always tried to keep a good relationship with my friends who go through this stuff and, and not write them off. And I try really hard to put myself in a position where they don't write me off, but we'll talk. And I've seen the doubt. And then it's like, well, I don't know if I can believe this anymore. Okay. Well, can you, can you believe this? I don't know. And then, well, I don't know if I can go to church anymore. I don't know if I can do this. I don't, I don't know if I can do that. And then usually what I've seen is it starts with the doubt, the doubt's not dealt with, then it becomes progressive Christianity. And it's like, okay, maybe I can hold on to some semblance of what I grew up with, but I want to do it on different terms. And like nine times out of 10 with all of my friends who drifted into the progressive Christianity thing, like nine times out of 10, they're, they're not walking with the Lord at all at this point. And they're actually antagonistic towards Christianity. Like they view Christianity the way you and I were raised to view cults, where it's like, that is bad and dangerous and it hurts people. Mm-hmm. And it's not good that you're a part of that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so to directly answer your question, what, 
saved me from leaving, why I chose to stay mm. in the historic faith of Judeo-Christian life and practice is I realized if God isn't good, then there's no point. Mm. That's mm. foundation. So what am I doing to find him? <laughs> what am I doing mm. to find him? And and if God is good, he wants a relationship. Mm. And so how how do you fix a broken relationship? Like if you're really wrestling and you're wounded in a relationship, yeah. you can't think your way out of it. You can't fix it mm. in your brain alone. Mm. And I think that's what those, that, that's the trend. Like with the whole deconstruction thing in, in its hip, sexy, cultural deconstruction form, the, the trend is like get in your head, really process your journey, listen to a couple podcasts and, and, and see where your faith journey kind of takes you. And I just want to say, good luck with that in any form of relationship. Like if you have a problem mm. with your spouse, your significant other, you can't get out of that argument alone in your head. You can't be like, nope, I don't need to talk to you. I already know what you're going to say. I know what I'm going to say. And I've already fixed it. Mm. No, like God is a if God is if God is real, then He's a person who wants relationship. How do you fix a relationship? You get yeah. in there and talk to them. <laughs> yeah. You have to. Yeah. If, I, if my wife Sandy and I were fighting, I would not be able to get out of that fight by just thinking in my head. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. I would have to engage her and talk it out till all hours of the night. And so, how does that look in the faith? For me, I, hmm. I realized I have to go to seminary. I have. Hmm. I, like it's, it's a matter of triage, like emergency triage. I have to go to mm. seminary and I have to read thousands of years of people answering my same questions. I'm not so smart that I'm the first mm. person to come up with this question. You right. know? So right. I read that and I engage and I dig in and I found out God, God has been actually like in relationship with his church for four plus thousand years years, Jews, uh, Israel, and the mm. Jewish practice before Jesus, and then mm. Jesus, and then 2,000 years of church, I'm part of a mm. long-standing relationship, and that should breed right. a little humility. So, I'm going to engage that for a while and see what happens, and that's why I stayed. That's great, man. That's so encouraging. I, I love hearing more directly about that journey because I feel like I watched it from a distance, and somebody, you know, somebody who's a former student of yours, there's a lot of weight in that relationship. Like I realize that now as a former youth pastor, I know I've got former students that are watching me as well. And, and watching you go through that and, and doing a little bit of that deconstruction and being vocal at times about things where you're like, why have we always done this this way? Mm -hmm. Why have we always thought this way? But then seeing the growth from that, like, honestly, you encouraged me so much from a distance to not run away from doubt. And to not say, oh, I can't think about that and just push it down and repress it, but to actually steady and to like find out why you believe what you believe. And for me, my doubts, because I've gone through my own, you know, I've gone through my own doubts and deconstruction at times. I've gotten to a place where my doubts don't push me away from Jesus. They push me towards him. And, you know, I'm, I feel really grateful in my own life too, because there's been things that have happened in my life. There's stuff that God has done where I look at that and I'm like, I don't have an explanation of that apart from God. Like I can't explain that away. So in some ways I feel like Thomas who gets to see the holes in the hands. And so I don't know if it makes sense, but like, because I've seen things where I can't explain them apart from Jesus, it almost feels like there's this responsibility where it's like, I need to continue being in ministry because I've seen things and I, I want to help other people see them because there's some people that never get to have some big spiritual experience that they can't explain 
apart from Jesus. And for those people, they need someone to help walk them through that. And I think you've been that for a lot of people. You've been that for me, even long distance. And it's something that inspires me. And hopefully people listening to the show, they get like, that's a huge part of why we do this show. We like to tackle the, the tagline of the show is no easy answers. We like to tackle tough things and teach people don't, don't run away from it, engage with it. Don't suppress it. If you push it down, psychology tells us like when you repress those things, it comes back even stronger. So instead put it out in front of you and say, I need to deal with this. I need to wrestle through it. And in my experience, wrestling through those doubts has, has brought me personally closer to God. And it's frustrating when I don't see my friends having that same experience, but it gives me hope because I know that, you know, for some people it takes longer mm-hmm. for them to reach that point, you know, and that's where trust comes in. I think trusting God with like entrusting people to God and saying, I can't save this person, but I know that God can. All right. So Evan, one thing that I've noticed is the people that I know, friends of mine who are struggling with their Christianity right now, like I'm thinking about people who are kind of on that, that edge where they, they, they're in that limbo where it's like they, they want to stay in the faith, but they're really struggling with the way that faith intersects with culture. Honestly, in so many conversations I've had with my friends, one of the number one things that comes up is always sexuality, mm-hmm. specifically homosexuality. And it's, it's almost this idea of like, Aaron, how can you tell me that God loves everybody and wants everybody to go to heaven, but then there are people who are attracted to their boyfriend, like men who are attracted to their boyfriend, just as much as I am attracted to my wife and just just as I have those, those same feelings for her of, of love and protection and, 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 and just friendship. Like I, they have that for their person. And you're telling me that I need to tell them that that's wrong and that they're going to hell if they pursue that relationship. And I get, I, I get it. Like I get why that's hard. I get that why that's frustrating. So can you speak into that at all? Cause I think that's, that's really big on society's mind right now. Yeah, man, I, I just want to acknowledge that is that is you know two straight two straight dudes talking about LGBTQ people is not necessarily the best <laughs> thing people like to listen to or helpful. But I, I I will say you know today is the first day of LGBTQ Pride Month, and so culture looks to the church on this day and goes, man, what what gives? It's 2021, especially churches that are in urban cities. San Diego is the eighth largest city in America, and just a huge LGBTQ, LGBTQ community here that is vocal and vibrant and full of amazing, beautiful people that have so much to offer the rest of society. And, you know, there's, there's some gay folks in our church who are seeking the best ways that they know how to follow Jesus and embrace the mm-hmm. historic sexual ethic of Jesus to trust yeah. the scriptures when they speak of the nature of marriage as one man, one woman in covenant partnership and for life. And, and, and yet they are gay people. These, these people Mm. are gay and they're wondering, what does that mean for me? And, Mm. and to give space to that question Mm. and to that community in our churches, you know, this is, I think it makes sense 
our culture is hypersexualized. So when people deconstruct, normally the sexuality conversation is at the heart of their doubt process. Like why? Like you said, like why is this? A, why is the church so hostile to gay people? And yeah, and so honestly, that is such an important question for every follower of Jesus to really get hit by in our core. Well, well yeah. Cause like if, if, if all of society, like it's pride month, like you said, if all of society is celebrating a group of people, mm-hmm. a group of people who have actually been oppressed mm-hmm. in, in certain ways. Absolutely. And then the, the church is the one corner that's like, well, we're not going to celebrate that. There's theological reasons for why that's happening. But the way that the culture views it is like, what is wrong with you people? Yeah. Like what? Why are you not like, it it looks like hate. It does. And that is what it's called in culture. And so, yeah, the church has an uphill battle, an uphill climb to, to engage in. And that is to both in one hand, hold to Jesus's understanding of marriage. He stood with Moses Mm -hmm. who penned the Torah Mm -hmm. that marriage is something Yahweh is created to reflect his image into the world through the male-female covenant partnership for life. This is 4,000 years, 99.9% of Judeo-Christian faith practitioners all over the world for centuries. Mm. So, so mm. how do you hold that? And in the other hand, hold close and honor the rights, the civic rights of LGBTQ persons to receive the same rights as other people in society. I mean, are you telling me that two gay folks who want to share each other's stuff if one of them dies legally should not be able to just because of the nature of their sexual partnership? That is a civil issue. And and that is something to be talked about separate. The church stands with Jesus, who stands with scripture on the nature of marriage. The church Mm. also stands for those who have been misunderstood and maligned and pushed to the margins. And so that Mm. creates a unique opportunity for Jesus followers to think well and not give short, tried answers, but to say, yes, Jesus was right when he says, have you not read in the beginning? He made them male and female. What God has joined together, let not man separate. And at the same time honor and embrace and listen and give endless space to the journey and the processings of our lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans neighbors to explore what the faith of Jesus looks like for them. Mm. Because Mm. I will say Jesus is radically inclusive. (laughs) All are welcome into his fold. All are welcome to follow the way of Jesus. He is also the nature of his call is radically clear and exclusive. <laughs> what, right. are, what are all people welcomed into? We're welcomed into mm. what Jesus believed. Mm. All people mm. are welcomed to embrace the way of Jesus, which includes historic one man, one woman marriage. All of us. So I would honestly, I'll say this on record. I would rather deal with the 50, 60% of people in my church who watched porn that week than any LGBTQ people who might be exploring the faith on a Sunday morning. I would rather mm. deal with the one out of seven pastors who watched porn the week before they preached in America. Mm. I would rather spend the rest of my life calling that to account than telling, seeking, honestly seeking LGBTQ persons what to do with their sex lives. I would call everybody 
everybody to consider the way of Jesus, especially the household of faith. <laughs> yeah. Believers who are compromising in sexuality. I would rather talk about mm. that. And there's plenty more of that going on than there is the other stuff. And so I just think, my goodness, why, why aren't LGBTQ people flocking to our Sunday gatherings, exploring the way of Jesus, this historic way? Like, my goodness, it's so attractive. And yet there's these things around sexuality I don't understand, but I'm attracted to it because it's so beautiful. And you're doing justice based out of the gospel. You all admit your need. You guys live in community, radically generous hospitality. What is going on? And yet you're, you're traditional about this marriage thing. What is going on? Like, I would rather yeah. see awakening like that. Well, well I, I think a big part of it is think about how baked in the importance of love is into our psyche. Like you grow up watching every Disney movie Mm. and it's all about the kiss and getting the girl or getting the guy or whatever. And you grow up and that, like, I remember when I was in your youth group, man, I remember we had a conversation. You were, you were talking to me about, you know, I I couldn't find a girlfriend in middle school and you were like, well, Aaron, you know, when Adam was looking, you know, he was checking out the hippos, checking out the monkeys, you know, Eve wasn't made yet. And God just said, just rest. So just rest, buddy. And then eventually, and you know, that was actually true for me when I finally started to rest. That's when God brought my wife into my life. But anyway, like love is so important to people. And I mean, it it makes sense. Romantic love, you mean? Yeah. Romantic love, like finding your person, your partner. And it makes sense because God designed it to be this beautiful thing. But for people who are non-heterosexual, to follow the way of Jesus is such a tall order. The way it's being, the way it's being served. Yes. The way the American evangelical church has served the way of Jesus is a tall order. It's a lot. It's a lot. And I don't think it, I think it's, I think it's very truncated. I think it's reduced. We've sold marriage as the ideal way to be Christian. No, absolutely. Uh, But, but what I'm trying to say is for people who do, and that's a good point you're making. Like singleness, singleness is very much a part of the way of Jesus. You can, marriage isn't the be all end all. You can be an excellent person and human being fully fulfilled in your singleness. And that's something I didn't know growing up. But so like for those who are called to follow the way of Jesus, who are homosexual, they have it harder than those of us who are straight, I would say. And that, cause so I, I sat down with some of my boys, my youth group boys, cause they were making gay jokes at youth group and grabbing the guitar and singing. It's Adam and Eve and not Adam and Steve. And so I pulled them aside and I was like, guys, imagine I, as your youth pastor was like, Hey guys, I've been searching the scriptures and it turns out your attraction to women is actually, it's, it's not of the Lord. It's a part of your sin nature. And, and if for you to act on it would be sin. So if you want to follow the way of Jesus, you got to be celibate. You can't get married. You can't have kids. Like you can't do any of that. How would like, how would you guys deal with that? And my boys were like, I don't even know if I could be a Christian, man. Mm -hmm. Like I need, I need a woman. Like I need a girl. Like I want to have sex one day. Like all of those things were going through their head. Like it was at such high importance. And so my response to them was like, you're the, 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 the people that you know, who are LGBT and who are trying to follow the the historic, the historic Christian sex ethic, that's the road they have to walk down. Mm -hmm. Like we should not be making fun of them. Like we, they're, they're heroes of the faith, you know, really like, Yeah, I, I want to, I think that's true in a sense. I, I also want to just kind of lean in and push back maybe on. Yeah, please do. When, when you said LGBTQ persons have it harder. Yes. But I want to, I want the church to own the reason why we've mm. sold marriage as the ideal way to be 
flourishing human beings in the family of God. I, I, mm. and, I, and I can't stress that enough. I think that some have used the term idolatry of marriage. And I don't want to use that term that strongly, but I, I kind of do. <laughs> because I think, <laughs> I think that that bill of goods has been sold to the Western church mm. so that now mm. singleness is secondary personhood. And single mm. people are viewed as, hey, when are you going to get it together? If you see a 38-year-old mm. single woman or single man... Unfortunately, mm. our, our Christianized marriage-prioritized culture says, oh, what's wrong with that single person? Yeah, it's like they're, it's like they're broken. And, and that is... In our, in our viewpoint. That. I would say, mm. not just LGBTQ persons, but single persons have mm. it hard. Yeah. Wow. Because of the way the church has prioritized, idolatrously at times, prioritized marriage in a way the scriptures do not... First Corinthians 7, Paul writes, I actually, right now, writing to Corinth, because of all the ways you guys are hypersexualizing your church, I kind of think it's better that you remain single as I am, honestly. Because, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he gives reasons, like a spouse is primarily also concerned with their spouse rather than just, quote, the Lord. Paul sees it as better. He's like, that you're like me, Paul, single. And we, we follow a single Messiah, and, mm. and don't any, don't, I, I won't let anyone for one second tell me, oh, that's because he was God. He could be single. No, <laughs> that's heresy. That's docetism that says he wasn't a fully mm. human person. Mm. No, Jesus was single. And, and, and I won't let anyone tell me for a second, like, that he wasn't a flourishing human. <laughs> Jesus was living the full good life without yeah. a wife. Right. Which sound, that sounded impossible to me in middle school. Like, I like I, I thought I, my mentality was without a girl, I'm going to die alone and sad in a cave. Jesus died alone. <laughs> yeah. Jesus died sad. Hmm. He wasn't fully alone. There were a community of women at his feet along with the beloved disciple. Hmm. But Jesus died alone so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus died for us in, a, in his state so that we could be invited into his family. And here's, here's my point. The church, mm. I believe, needs, needs to, starting with me as a leader, we need to do a far better job intentionally creating communities of marrieds and singles that are interdependent on one another, sharing homes, mm. sharing Sabbath, sharing money, mm. sharing family trips, sharing community. Mm to embody the kind of community Jesus wanted to create when his mom mm. came knocking on the door and she's like, Jesus, come home. What are you doing? Your mother and your brothers are looking for you. And he's like, who are my mother and my brothers? Wow. Mm. Not my biological family primarily anymore. Mm. It's, and he looks at the room and he says, it's those who do my father's will. Single, married, mm. gay, straight. Mm. Regardless of your sexual orientation, you are invited in the family of Jesus And in the way of Jesus, there is this thing called marriage that exists as between man and woman only. But that is by no means the most flourishing way to be a human being in the family of Jesus. Jesus redefined family around his father. And I I just think we can say that, but until our churches model that, then Pride Month will be a missed opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. I... I think you're touching on something really good, man. Because I think, I think we've got these two groups of people. We've got single people and LGBT people. And in the church, one side is seen as 
second class citizens and the other side is seen as the worst of the worst. And so I, I fully agree that churches need to restructure and fully reshape how they deal with those different groups of people. And if the ideal is always like, yeah, just, just thinking about if, if you're somebody struggling with your sexuality, you're attracted to the same gender and the church is just saying you will not be fulfilled. You will not be able to fully serve here and engage here and experience here. If you're not married to, you know, to a heterosexual partner, that person's never going to feel at home. So I think, I think you're touching on something there that, that, that applies to both LGBT and straight people. I'm glad you brought that up, man. That's good. It's really good. Circling back to the culture. I I do want to ask though, for us as Christians, how do we hold our belief about sexuality in love? Mm. Like how do like give, I'm not saying you're going to solve the church's problems right now on this podcast, Mm. but I'm just saying for you in your mind, what's your roadmap when it's looking at a culture, millennials, Gen Z who look at Christians and say, Christians hate LGBT people. Like, why would I ever want anything to do with them? How do you, how do you, how do you win that culture back? And how do you correct, how do you course correct the problems of the past? Cause there, there have been problems. I talked to a friend of mine who worked at a church and he was like, yeah, we had a gay kid in the youth group. And one of our associate pastors told his mom when she came asking what I do about my gay son, the associate pastor was like, insult him, belittle him, mock him until you scare him straight. And we've seen this kind of stuff. Like there's horror stories from all corners of the internet of people who struggle with their sexuality and experience spiritual abuse from people who are supposed to be there for them. So how, how do we, how do we help the culture see the love that we're supposed to hold? And how do, how do we course correct as a church? Okay. So I'm not, I'm definitely not the expert voice in this. I love listening to stories. I love listening to lives. And I do, I do love the expression lived experience. I think that's an important expression, even though it's somewhat redundant because every experience is lived. But I, I do value not just talking about gay people, but talking with gay people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Like that's huge. I, I don't know yeah. how, I don't know how long, how many years I talked about gay people before I talked mm. with gay people. Mm. I, I would be ashamed to count them and, and take inventory of those years. And nowadays it's, it's more, it's more of an open conversation. So it's kind of no excuse. <laughs> like the, like the gay community there, they are us, they are in our churches. They're not, mm. they're not all hidden anymore. You know what I mean? There's no excuse to only talk about gay people. All of us can do that. All of us can talk with gay people. And I'm very mm. intentional saying that many times on this podcast right now. And the second thing, my dear friend, Preston Sprinkle, has mm. an organization called the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. Yeah, he is great. He's the, I think, leading voice in the Western church that I know of on organizing the conversation from a historic perspective and, and responding mm. in love. Radical grace. That's the consent piece. Give people, deconstructing people, doubting people, LGBTQ people, whoever, give them, spa- give them space so that they come with consent for you to speak into their story. He's the mm. expert on giving that grace space without yeah. compromising the truth that has been given to us from Jesus through the scriptures, both grace and truth. I would highly recommend if you go to centerforfaith.com and there's just 
a wealth of resources, articles, books. You can go to online conferences. He has one coming up all the time. And uh, yeah, his I don't know how public knowledge this is, but he's he's doing his first ever full scale on the first full scale conference in 2022. It's going to be amazing. Awesome. Uh, the speakers awesome. are second to none and it's going to be a, a incredible. <laughs> I can't wait yeah. to go. But I, I would say those two things. One, one is one we can all do. Don't talk about, but with hmm. LGBTQ people. And, and number two is go to centerforfaith.com, get educated because hmm. there's very simple, even language things that I found yeah. gain a lot of traction and respect and trust with the LGBTQ community. Like, like just ditch the word homosexual, honestly, and say gay. It's like, that's what they, that's the word they use. And it means the same thing. So why not meet on their terms? There's various mm. things like that, that, that just really go a long way because it shows genuine care and love and respect yeah. as persons. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, man. Like, I personally don't know. Like, yeah, I don't know the right. struggle. I don't know the life. I don't know the shame, honestly. Yeah. The gay folks in our church that talk about their experience growing up in the church and being gay and yet still remaining faithful to Jesus, but they're still, they're absolutely gay. Like, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of one guy in our church who's never, he's never seen a woman the way you and I do in his life. He's only seen men that way. And he's like, man, the shame. Yeah. The narratives of shame that cripple you, you just, you're never comfortable, not only in your own skin and sexuality, but you're never comfortable in a room, like yeah, almost anywhere, at least this guy's story. Just hearing that, giving space for that story to be told and heard and respected. Yeah. You know, there's this last thing I'll say on this. My friend Preston has a friend <laughs> who did this survey, this research, largest study that's ever been done on the intersection of church and LGBTQ persons. And something like 85% of the gay population of America has a history in the evangelical church in some way. Mm. That's higher than the average. Like, it's only like 60 in the average population. But when it comes to mm. the LGBTQ population is higher. There's more people in the in the mm. LGBTQ community of history in the church than the than all the rest of the Americans. It's crazy, and so he found out of those people who left the church, mm. why did they? Mm. Only three percent left because of the church's historic view of one man one woman marriage. Mm. The other ninety seven mm. left because they didn't feel they could give spiritual consent because they weren't heard or they were booted out, or they were shown the yeah. back door quietly by their pastor, or they were said, never tell your story in your youth group again, or they were said, Gosh. you're wrong, you are dirty, or they, whatever. Yeah, They weren't given space to process. Mm. They, they didn't even say, change mm. your view. They didn't want us to change our view. Mm. They want us to change our posture. Mm. Wow, that's heavy. That's good. It's good, man. Like, it's helpful. I, I think I think that... What I'm hearing you say is for those of us in the church who are non-affirming, straight or whatever, mm -hmm. holding that theology, hold it humbly and bend over backwards to show love and support to those who are struggling through it. I, I just think of, I think of the place the church is right now when it comes to like pornography, mm. like that is something 
where literally most churches you go to, there's going to be a support group. If you confess to it, people are like, oh, that's, that's every, that's every man's battle. Like everyone goes through that. Come to our group. We'll, we'll help you. We'll, we'll counsel you. Like there's so much grace. As if women don't uh, battle with that either. And, and that's a whole nother issue. And I learned that as, uh, I learned that as a youth pastor. That's something that the girls in my group were struggling with as well. But I'm just saying like, there's this overwhelming support for that sexual sin but then we have a whole nother group of people where their sexual sin was, it made the way they were made to feel mm-hmm. was you are beyond repair. You are so broken. All you can do is pray this way. If it doesn't work, like you're doomed. Don't ask questions about this. Don't bring it up, hide it. You'll be rejected. You'll be pushed out. I mean, like I said, I, I have deep guilt for how I treated some of my best friends who came out of the closet, got expelled from our private Christian school. And I've never talked to them since cause I can't find them. I, I don't know where they are, what happened to them. And, and I look back on that and I'm like, I wish I would have known mm. how to be different. Mm. And it's something I've been trying to like, something I've been trying to grow from ever since. To, I don't want that to ever happen again. I don't want to ever have somebody struggling with that who doesn't feel loved and welcomed in instead of pushed out. So, yeah. Well said, man. I think the next place I'd want to go with this is let's just talk about this whole, this whole idea of solo Christianity. People who grew up in the church, went through some hard times, went through some struggles. And now they're like, I don't need church. Like, I don't need to go. I I can just do like God and I have this thing. We talk, we pray, I pray. Sometimes he talks back, but I don't need to be around other Christians. I don't need to spend my Sundays in church. I can I can follow God on my own terms. What I've heard you preach about this before. What would your response be to somebody? So if I'm somebody sitting at the table with you, Evan, saying, Evan, I'm a Christian. I'm still following Jesus, but I'm burned out on the church. I've experienced stuff in the church I didn't like. And really, I just think, you know, Christians are hypocritical. Like, I don't think I need to go to church. I'm just going to do Christianity on my own terms. What would you say to somebody going through that? Yeah, I mean, if they were... If they were telling me that, I'd be like, I think, I think I'd, lo- I'd love to hear that story. And I think that makes us the church right now. <laughs> like talking through your deal with the church sounds like church business. I'm in. Let's talk about mm-hmm. it. And I don't say that tritely. I literally don't know how else to process with other people that, that have a shared language. When people say I don't buy into the institutional church anymore... I just want to ask more questions like what is an institution? An institution is more than one person coming together agreeing on how this group operates. Mm. Even if it's a couple friends with beers at a pub once a week talking about the deep stuff of life and what we're really going through. As soon as that becomes about Jesus and you agree on a meeting time, and subject matter every time that's a, even if it's not about Jesus it's an it's an institution because there's an agreement there's a shared value right. it's not necessarily a christian institution so normally what people mean by institutional church is the tradition they have experienced right and maybe that's maybe that's a legitimate concern like there there are pros and cons to the traditions we experience and deconstruction is important for all of us we all pick up toxic stuff. Hmm. There is no completely non-toxic church. 
Right. You know, I mean, I want, I will, I'm not going to fault any one church. I've been a part and on staff at many churches, but all along the way, there are things I picked up at certain churches I was on staff at that were both incredibly formative positively for me. And also some things I'm like, Whoa, I, I don't know what I think about that. Is it even okay that I don't like that? Like, <laughs> yeah, right. Like I have a, I, I would like to say I have a, I have a higher functional view of women in leadership now than I mm-hmm. did in previous churches. And I've had to deconstruct what I, what I believe was a low view of women mm. in previous churches that I experienced. But, but what I didn't do is say, you know, the whole institution, I just can't, I just can't deal with it anymore. There are some who do say that. And I think just a long conversation, again, spiritual consent's a big deal. Do I have your consent to listen to your story and speak back? Like, what's this conversation about? And then if, if we go there, I just want to affirm, like, wow, yeah, there's some messed up stuff you've experienced. What would it look yeah. like to be part of a community mm. that doesn't have that? <laughs> what would it look like to be part right. of a community that that is growing away from that towards Jesus. So, I, yeah, I mean, it's different. I can't, I, there's so many different ways to have that but, conversation, as many, as many ways as there are I, people. I feel like that's so, what you're getting at is so important to me because I think all of us went through this where we grew up at one church, my home church, my dad's, my dad's the pastor there. It's great. I love it. But everybody grows up at one church and you think this is the one way of seeing everything theologically. And anybody who's outside that is a heretic or weird or or broken. And then when you start to realize that the body of Christ is a lot broader and it's sort of like I've made this analogy before on the show, but it's like you're sitting at the Thanksgiving table and you've got your you know, you're, you're, maybe you eat meat and you've got your vegan aunt and you disagree with her. Maybe you've got your, your uncle who's got political views that you don't share, but you're at that table because of the blood that you all share and because of marriage, you know, you've married into it. And that's, that's the Christian faith. We're all at that same table. We're different. We disagree on things, but we're there because of the marriage and the blood, blood of Christ and the marriage of Christ and the church. So I think what you're getting at is really important because Go back to that example that I made earlier in the show about that girl who said, I I believe in evolution. I don't know if I can be a Christian because my parents said that I can't if I believe in this. So here's my thing. I've I've talked about this on the show before. I know I'm in a minority position by being the guy who doesn't believe in evolution. I, I believe in not necessarily young earth creationism, but I don't hold a theistic evolution. Yeah. But I don't care if anybody else does. Like if you believe that God created the world and if evolution's the tool that you think he used to do it, I'm not going to kick you out of anything. Like you're yeah. my brother and sister in Christ. I, I told that to that, that young, you know, high school girl, like, no, you're a part of the body of Christ. Like I would rather you believe in evolution and Christianity than think I can't believe in Christianity there you go. if I believe in evolution. There you, you go. You know what I mean? <laughs> so yeah, there you go. when we have these minor issues, it's like, why, why do we put so much emphasis on them to the point where we're like, I, for so long, I treated people who thought differently on things like eschatology and the whole Calvinism, Arminianism debate. I just treated people badly in my mind because they, they didn't hold the exact same thing as me. And now I realize that we're humans trying to understand the divine. Like we're ants trying to understand what the heck a MacBook Pro is. We can see that it's shiny. We know we can touch it and feel the smoothness, but we don't know what a microchip is. Right. You know what I mean? Like we have no categories for yeah. that. So 
Yeah. But we, we can know what he's revealed in the scriptures. Exactly. And yeah. We, what he's revealed. And that's, and that's important because right. he does, he has not revealed in the scriptures how old the earth is. Right. Yeah. He has not. So he revealed that he created the world. He did not reveal how. Hmm. So, so science can come in and do whatever it wants. Right. At that point. Could God have created the world in a split second to make it look old? Sure. Could God have created the world through an, a process over 13.7 mm-hmm. billion years mm-hmm. with, you know, no, no scientists know the origin of life still, but plenty mm-hmm. of scientists agree. I would say almost all of the scientists agree now <laughs> that right. life evolved from simple to complex over many, many billions of millions of years in a process called natural selection. Right. All scientists virtually agree on that. And, and Mm -hmm. the reality is God has revealed specific things in scripture and they don't include how God brought about the natural order of life. Right. Only that he did. Yeah. So, 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 yeah, what you just said is spot on. That is not a divide for issue. Yeah. It's not a divide issue. Like, you can believe that the earth is 10,000 years old, and I can believe that the earth is 4.5 billion years old after it split off of the sun, <laughs> which coalesced from galactic cloud matter, stardust, <laughs> over... Right, right. I can believe, and it does not affect the authority of the scripture. The word of God reveals mm. his plan that he created for himself to reveal through humans to the, to the world as his, co- as his partners. Like he created us to fill the world and subdue it and be his image bearers in the world. Could he, created, could he have yeah. created Adam and Eve out of literal dirt? Absolutely. <laughs> could that be a poetic Absolutely. device to yeah. describe our connection to the soil? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is not, <laughs> yeah. that is not liberal right. Bible reading. That no. is not liberal Bible reading. No. Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm glad you, you, you touched back with that because we just last week did an episode on postmodernism, which is something that is kind of new to me, postmodern philosophy, trying to understand it, trying to wrap my brain, my brain around it. But yeah, what I'm not saying is, well, God's unknowable. So just who, like, who knows what truth is? Like, who cares? You know, like, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is exactly what you just said, that we, we can know what has been revealed to us in scripture, but there's certain things that scripture wasn't meant to do. Like Tim Mackey was the first guy to point that out to me, listening to his lecture on the Bible and science. And I love how he put it. Like Genesis was not written to be an American 20th century science textbook. Like it just wasn't, there's something different that the authors are trying to do there. So I, I think yeah, you and I are are similar in the way that this conversation is ping ponged into a million different directions. For the audience's sake, I think if you're listening to this, I hope you're catching what's happening here. What we're doing is we're two guys who are wrestling through different difficult things within Christianity without just saying, This is hard. Let's just eject the whole thing. Well said. Like we're we're wrestling. And that's okay. It's okay to not know. I used to think that it was all about certainty. And now, now it's like, <laughs> I, there's so much about Jesus I'm certain about. Mm-hmm. There's so much that I'm also still not certain about, but it's my relationship with Jesus that sustains me through that. And I think of it like my relationship with my parents, 
when you're a kid, when you're young and you're walking around with your parents, you don't know their whole backstory. You don't know every conversation they had before they had you. You don't know everything they went through, but you know that they love you. You know what they've revealed to you about themselves. Yeah. And that's all you need for that yeah. relationship, you know? Yeah. And, and we do need to listen to what they say. Like yeah. When your parents talk to you, loving them means listening to what they say. And, and I say yes. that because that's what doctrine is. It's the church listening to mm. what God says. Mm. I, I once got in a conversation with a famous progressive podcaster who will remain nameless. And, 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 and we text each other sometimes. He's like, Evan, what is doctrine? Like, why is doctrine so important to Christians? Jesus said, love one another. And the church said, okay, that means agree with everything that's in these old books. Hmm. And I'm like, wow. Yeah, no, that's actually not. Actually, if you want to talk about love, think about a couple in couples counseling. If there's a couple that's not talking to each other well, what does the counselor do? He says, all right, I'll just, I'll just say, the wife, speak to the husband the problem. Mm. what do you feel? And then mm. what does the husband do? If he's loving, what does he do? He repeats back in his own words, <laughs> right. what right. she said, and that right. is loving. And yes. so God reveals, here is who I am. Mm. Creator, compassionate, kind. And yeah. look, Jesus, you can see Jesus and you've seen me. What does Jesus yeah. say? And what do his followers, his disciples say? That is who I am. Now, now, now here's your turn, church. Repeat back what I said in your own words. Mm. Mm. So what do we repeat back? The Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Jesus Christ is only begotten. Nicene Creed. Trinity. Mm. Athanasian Creed. Chal- Chalcedonian Creed. He is, he is human and divine. Jesus, God, man. Like these are doctrines. What are doctrines? Love. Mm. Doctrines yeah. are the church listening together and responding in our own words what God has said. Mm. And so when I'm tempted to deconstruct, all I have is the core doctrines in my heart. I'm like, I don't know about this. I don't know how to relate. What is the church's response to all the different LGBTQ? And like, what about all the problem and everything? I just go, my gosh, humble myself. What's really motivating me right now? Yeah. And, 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 oh, I get to be part of love. I get to be part of a long line of fathers and mothers in the faith who have responded back to Jesus, what Jesus said about himself. And that is more than enough. And I'm going to be faithful to that. Mm, So good. That's so good. Yeah. Because I think we have to always examine what is our core motivation for everything. And when you understand God's core motivation as love, like he made a family He's been bending over backwards to save that family. Like it's all about love. The whole story of human history is about love. And that, that fact should qualify how you hold doctrine because some people hold doctrine as this self-righteous stick to beat people back with where it's like, you don't have the right doctrine. Like you're, you're a lost cause. But for us, if we understand the reason God wrote that doctrine in the first place was to save and to win lost people and to love them, that should be how we hold doctrine, I think, and how, and how we use it. Like, right. you know, I think, I think of going back to the whole, you know, LGBT issue, you know, this is where I've come to in my mind with it. I grew up in an environment and it wasn't any of the adults in the environment. It was just, I can't even, I don't know where to pinpoint it. It just, it just is how it was. It was just, gay jokes 
And when we talked about it in church, it was, this is the worst of the worst. And my perception of it was that's bad and that's evil and that's gross. And that was how I thought of it. And so when I thought of doctrine, it was like, oh, this is something to correct people and inform them that they're wrong. And now I realize that I am just as much a sinner as anyone else. I'm just as sexually broken as a straight man, as anyone else. I need Jesus to save me just as much as anyone else does. I need the gospel just as much as anyone else. So now I realize like most LGBT people, like most straight people, will not accept Jesus because the Bible says the way is narrow and few find it. So my job isn't to pick it on the side of the road against whatever they want to do. It's to bend over backwards to try to reach the few that I can. What if we wrapped it up with just sort of you, Evan, talking to church leaders? Because this this podcast is a lot of church leaders. It's a lot of, we have some senior pastors who listen to the show. We have some youth pastors. How can the church work hard to try to reach people who've walked away from the faith and church? I mean, I'm, I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but I do think this, I do think this is a one, a one hit wonder. Give spiritual consent. Mm. Don't come... Don't come in guns blazing with your apologetics and your answers and your reasons for believing. Mm. When when someone's in a place of severe doubt and deconstruction, a crisis of faith, it's hard to tell the difference between clean and dirty doubt. And and often there we 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 act like we're looking for answers to questions, but we're looking for healing for our wounds. Mm. And and the only way to really allow breathing room for that discovery is through giving spiritual consent. And again, my friend AJ, he wrote this book called After Doubt. Mm. Highly, highly recommend. It's everything we've talked about in this podcast. Mm. And he tells this story of this girl who walks away from the faith. She grew up in a in a house with a pretty controlling mother and her mom would give her no privacy. She'd barge in. Mm to her bedroom anytime and as she's it's like mom please knock I'm like why are you always up in my business and eventually she walked away from the faith not necessarily because the mom was barging in to her bedroom but for many reasons and she came back to the faith and what the moment the turning point back to the faith for this girl she came to revelation chapter 3 and and she just happened to be reading because i guess she was having a kid and when you have a kid you kind of feel like you need God. So right. So she, she's like, maybe I do need God. I don't know. Let's see what happens. Mm. And she reads Revelation 3, verse 20, where it's like, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Mm. And immediately she's like, oh, her stomach sank with like the weight of relief. Oh my gosh. I realize I've absorbed a picture of God mm. that is... God is, God is actually a gentleman who gives space, who doesn't invade mm, mm. in a negative sense. Jesus standing at the door knocking, the God of all creation. And that undid, that moment undid so much mm. for her in, mm. in the most beautiful way. And to realize God is someone who gives space for spiritual consent. Like we as pastors, people, people connect. The reason why people 
might not have a healthy view of God is kind of warranted based on the act the actions of many pastors. <laughs> mm. So people associate church leaders with God. Yeah. And so if church leaders can stand at the door and knock and mm. then just wait mm. and just be present mm. and prove that there are safe spaces for spiritual consent instead of coming in guns, guns blazing with our answers right. and, our, and our trite quick sermons and our podcasts and all of our <laughs> books and everything... Mm. Like this, this, all of this, we're just talking about. What about, what does it look like to talk with? Yeah. And to say, hey, what, what would it look like for me to be truly safe, for you to work through this real stuff? I'm, I'm here until, until then. Let me know. I just remember sitting with a guy in our church. I don't know where he is. He may have moved somewhere or may he, maybe he did fall away from the faith. I don't know, but when we first planted Park Hill, he just said, honestly, Evan, I'm here because it's my last straw. Mm. It's my last stand. I'm just terrified of being duped. Mm. This guy was a classic Enneagram 5 intellectual. And he's like, I can argue myself in and out of the resurrection any day. Mm. And I'm like, that's fascinating. Tell me more. That sounds fascinating. <laughs> let's meet. Let's keep talking. And he's like, I can't believe I can talk like this with you. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's so important. I think it ended well for him because he, he eventually invited his parents to come down and visit the church. He was super pumped for them to meet me. So that was good. I guess now that I'm, now that the story's coming back, he did move, I think to Texas, but it reminds me to text him, see how he's doing. But like that, <laughs> that's, I don't mean to lift myself up, no, but that is one moment. Yeah. <laughs> contrary to many other moments. <laughs> that's one moment. I think I got it a little right. <laughs> oh my gosh. I remember creating so much angst for people and not being a safe place in my late teens, early twenties, even early thirties, because I love debates and I love giving quick answers. Mm. But my goodness, that doesn't help someone when what they're looking for is healing and a space for healing. That's what, that's what I would say. Mm. That's, dude, that's so good. And I love it because that's the trajectory God has had me on for the past decade is learning just exactly that. And so hearing you lay it out in ways I hadn't even thought of before is really encouraging. It's really encouraging and affirming because I think that that is what culture needs. Like they need Christians who are willing to listen, to be slow to speak, quick to hear and slow to anger, who can actually listen to people and meet them where they're at and to be that shepherd or to participate with the shepherd in, in bringing the sheep home. I remember a camp that you taught years and years ago at uh, Green Valley Lake where you did this sermon where you said, it's not about lost people. It's about loved people. Like we call them lost people, but in God's eyes, they're loved people. And that's always stuck with me. And I think that's at the heart of everything we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. For Jesus, lost means loved. Mm. That's, that's a Josh Ryan Butler thing. Mm. He, he introduced that concept to me. It's so good. Because Luke, I think Luke 15, there's a lost coin, lost sheep, and a lost child, lost son. And in all three of those stories, you see the woman turning over her furniture to find the lost coin. <laughs> she wasn't angry at the coin. She's like, I'm willing to give up everything. Same thing with the lost sheep. Leave the 99. I want the lost one. The lost one's my interest. And the lost son, he goes running, mm. hikes up his robe and runs for mm. this son who, who cursed him, really. The son cursed him, but the dad's like, oh my gosh, throw mm. a freaking party mm. for this lost son. He's found. Mm. For Jesus, lost means loved. We need that same 
uh, approach, I think. So good. To people that are, to people that sense that they're lost and seeking. Awesome. Awesome, man. Well, this has been great. I really appreciated this conversation. Seriously, so much. I feel like I'm back in youth group again, just hanging out, talking about Jesus. So <laughs> I appreciate oh, it, man. man. You're, you're a peer. You're a peer, man. Mm, thanks, man. You are, uh, I respect you tons. Oh, awesome. I appreciate that. I appreciate you. So we'll definitely have to get you back on here again. This was a long combo. Thank you for all of your time. We'd love to get you back on again. And maybe someday I can get my co-host Brian on here. And I think you'd, you'd love him too. So awesome. Thanks, man. Appreciate yeah. it. See you, Aaron. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Good Lion Podcast. If you like our show, please take a minute to give us a review on iTunes. It seriously helps so much. The more reviews we get, the more people will find us. And so if you want to help the show, please just go on iTunes and leave a quick review. We also love questions from listeners and we love to do episodes focused on questions. So if you have a question and you want us to talk about it on the show, send it to our email address, which is goodlionnetwork at gmail.com. Send us a question. We'd love to talk about it on the show. The Good Lion Podcast is a production of the Calvary Global Network, and it's produced by myself, Aaron Salvato, and my co-host, Brian Higgins. Our show is a part of the Good Lion Podcast Network, a network of Christian podcasters that Brian and I started with our friends. Check out our website, goodlion.io, where you can find a ton of other Christ-centered, encouraging, and equipping podcasts. Our goal with this ministry is to reach people all over the world with Christ-centered content that helps them as they walk closer with Jesus. If you like what we do and you want to support us, go to goodlion.io support. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.